Lovely. Let's pray together before we begin tonight's study. Thank you, dear Lord. Praise you. Praise you, praise you, praise you. Father, I just want to thank you personally for travelling mercies over the last few days. And Father, for your wonderful sustaining power. Father, it's wonderful what you're doing around this country. And I just thank you that in some measure we have a part to play in it here in Chichester. Father, we would ask you even tonight, Lord, to speed our ministry, Lord, and Father, to remove the obstacles that may be ahead to the ministry which is in this place. Father, I thank you for the opportunity tonight that we can gather in freedom around your word. And I do thank you for the wonderful way you've preserved your word that we might understand wonderful things. I would ask, Father, that we should not be guilty of mishandling the word of God in any way. And I do ask you that always we should listen to your spirit and be willing, Father, even if there are problem verses to us, be willing to be corrected by them so that we might learn that which is true and that which is straight and not be swayed either to the right nor the left. Oh, Father, you know the difficulties of a man in my own position. And I do thank you, Father, for the body of Christ, which is there always to correct and there always to seek God. And Father, together we just ask you tonight to anoint us in a new way. Hallelujah. Father, we ask that the truth may go forth tonight to set the captives free. Father, to heal those who are damaged in any way that the blind might see and those who cannot walk should walk uprightly. Father, I ask too that those who have been damaged by false doctrine, by a wrong emphasis, may indeed come to you and find solace and rest for their souls. Just give me the ability, Lord, to cut through that which is wrong and to hit right on target tonight. In Jesus' name, I would ask it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, now we're dealing with the basics of the faith and we're talking about essentials for growth and you remember we're dealing with techniques without which you will not grow in the Lord. And last time we started studying the subject of prayer. Now, in fact, we saw many, many important things last time and I think that no one who came to that meeting didn't leave the meeting without learning something new about prayer. There were many things that were reinforced, many things we knew already, but all of us received new insight into those things. Do you remember that we talked about the basic mechanics of prayer, how prayer is normally addressed to the Father, although sometimes to Jesus, but normally to the Father as the great planner? That when we prayed, we always prayed in the name of Jesus, because he's the mediator. That we should pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we went on to see how prayer generally falls into five main categories. All right, you have uh, confessional prayer, where you confess your sins and get uh, back into a right relationship with God. You have praise, in which you extol God for who he is. Thanksgiving, and praise God for the increasing thanksgiving in our own fellowship from that day. Thanksgiving, where people come and thank God for all the mercies that he's poured upon them, and all the arts of prayer, and the way he's blessed them. And then you have intercessory prayer, in which we selflessly take on another person's burden or the burden for a work or the burden for a country and we present that to God and really fight and battle on behalf of that particular cause. And last of all, we had the prayers of petition in which we ask God for particular things. And then we went on to see that every prayer has two parts to it. You've not only got the prayer as it is spoken, 
but you've got what underlies that prayer, that is the desire in a person's heart. You remember we saw that whatever prayer you pray, it's because there's something in your heart, a desire for something within your heart. And then we began to examine it in great detail, and I think we saw some wonderful things, which certainly, in my own life, have meant that I can say that God has answered my prayers, even when the prayer seems to be answered with a no. And yet sometimes I've seen that God answered the desire behind that particular prayer. And so, all of that was very important. However, today I want to take perhaps what was the most important thing that I spoke about last time, and I want to develop it. And we're talking about prayers of faith, and the point that I made last time that we're going to concentrate on this time is the actual reason why there is prayer anyway. And you remember we saw that in the Lord's Prayer, the Lord told us to pray this, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you remember we saw that because of the fall, this is Cosmos Diabolicus, the devil's world, God has a will and God sees his will functioning in the heavens, but to see it function here on the earth, he has the church, which is a sort of fifth column. Do you remember we're in this world, but we're not of the world. We uh, function, it seems, among the devil's people, and the devil thinks he can kick us around, but in fact, we belong to God, and we are God's own folk down here, and we are the ones who want to see the overthrow of the status quo down here. We want to see the devil overthrown, and we want to see God's rule imposed even on this society. And as a result of what we said last time, we can see now that prayer isn't just a matter of haphazard shopping list. Well, what else do I want to ask God? Oh, I would like this, and I'd like that, and then I'd like this, and I'd like that. It's not a question of that. Rather, we are seeking God to know what his will is, and then we are praying that will into existence on the face of this earth so that the will of God functions. Now, that's what we're concentrating on. And a true prayer of faith is one that prays the will of God into existence. All right, now we live in days where you don't hear that taught very often. And usually the sort of teaching that is around in some places today says that a prayer of faith isn't that. What a prayer of faith is, is that you can ask God anything at all, whatever you want, whatever you desire, God will give you the desire of your heart, whatever it is, and providing you have enough faith, providing you believe hard enough, so it will come to pass. And there are many people in Britain who stand up today and speak about prayers of faith, and that's what they're saying to the congregation. Look, whatever you want, you just ask God. And if you have enough faith, you'll get it. That's what they say. So you want a magenta jaguar with your name written in green letters on the side? All you have to do is reach out, um, pray for that particular thing, and if you've got enough faith, it will come to pass. You want a gold-plated washing machine. Well, that's all right, too. Simply reach out to God. You've got to be really specific about this. Not just any old washing machine. Not just your automatic hot point, which only costs £350, which does the wash quite well in an hour. No, sir, you want one for £1,500, which also does the wash in an hour, but it's gold-plated. And all you have to do, if you've got enough faith, just reach out, and that will be yours. Now, of course, most of us know that that is not correct in the slightest way. And most of us know in our own experience that whereas we've seen many, many prayers answered, they're not generally answered in that sort of way. And so we've got to ask exactly where is that wrong and exactly what are true prayers of faith. Normally what is said is that if you've got enough faith, you can get it. And if you don't get it, well, you see, you didn't have enough faith. 
You didn't believe hard enough. And so you have a lot of people around who are trying their best to summon up faith, you see, and they're uh, sort of tempting themselves and gritting their teeth, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe. Not just any washing machine, I got the money for a washing machine, but that's not what I want, I want this gold-plated one. And they're tensing themselves like this, and they walk around, I'm believing it, I'm believing it, I'm believing it. And that's it. Right? Certainly not right. And unfortunately, some of these uh, people find themselves totally disillusioned when the thing doesn't come to pass like that. And by the way, what a dreadful thing, you know, to say to someone, well, you see, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith, you see, over that particular issue. Oh, well, I just haven't got enough faith. I really haven't started. And there's this disqualification of self that occurs. Very often, if you listen to the teachers who say that sort of thing, and many teachers get a right balance, but I'm talking about those who are wrongly balanced, you know, out of equilibrium on this, very often it's because they've taken one verse out of context or they've conveniently taken half a verse and forgotten the rest, you see. Today we're going to look at many scriptures that talk about prayers of faith and we're going to put them in context and we're going to understand what they're actually saying. Can I tell you this, and this will be a great relief to you all, and we'll see this later on in this course, faith does not exist in a sort of vacuum. Well, I've got to believe it. I don't know why, but I've just got to believe it. It doesn't exist like that. You see, that's the sort of faith that the Christian scientist has. That's the sort of faith that um, the power of positive thinking promotes. You know, I'm six foot, but I want to be seven foot, so I'm going to think that I'm seven foot. And so they summon it up. That's not biblical faith. You'll know the scripture, don't you, in Romans 10 verse 17. Don't turn to it tonight. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And that's a very key and crucial scripture, because what it says is this, true faith, occurs when you respond to God's word. Faith does not exist in a vacuum. It exists side by side with the word of God. And it's when we look into the word and see the principles of the word and see God's character, then you can have faith. Incidentally, that's how you were converted. You knew you were a sinner. You knew you needed saving. But you read the word of God. The word told you that Jesus was the saviour and you acted upon what the word said. That's true faith. All right, that's the real thing. And so, faith has to be tied up with the declaration of the Word of God, and a prayer of faith, therefore, is one that is prayed in line with the known will of God and the known Word of God. If it's not tied up to the Word of God, it's no prayer of faith, whether you like it or not. No matter how much energy you're summoning up, no matter how many teeth you're wearing out by gritting them together, that's not faith, and nothing will occur with that sort of thing, you see? All right, to check this, let's go to a scripture, and we'll be seeing many, and do remember we've got to get a balance on these scriptures. Let's go to the first letter of John, 1 John and chapter 5, 1 John 5, and here we have a declaration of what I've just said, that true prayers of faith are in line with the will of God. 1 John 5, verse 14 and 15. And if you hear a man quote another verse, do remember this is also in the Bible, and we get the truth when we balance scripture by scripture. Look what it says, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, you see the thing that's added to that. It doesn't say if you ask anything. It says if you ask anything according to his will, he hears you. Verse 15. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. 
if we pray the will of God, then we know for a while that obviously that is going to be fulfilled. Of course it is. It's God's will. And God's will will be done. So we pray according to the will of God and we know that that prayer is going to be answered positively. It may not be answered immediately, but certainly it will be answered positively. Incidentally, it is this verse which has led some people to pray a prayer like this. Father, do something if it be thy will. And I want to say immediately that when people started to pray that, it was a term of reverence. When they said, Father, do so and so if it be thy will, that what they were saying is, Lord, but we allow you to be sovereign. I have to tell you, in the day in which we live, that phrase is no longer generally used in terms of reverence to God. It's used rather to cover up unbelief. Unbelief is a scourge in the body of Christ, and that little phrase is used in unbelief more than any other. Well, Father, just do this, if it be your will. And many people who pray that actually don't believe that God will answer the prayer. They don't expect him to answer the prayer, and so they add this little caveat on the end, you know, if it be thy will, and that gives them a cop-out. You see what I mean? Well, if it hasn't had, well, that wasn't God's will, obviously. And many, many, many people up and down this country pray, adding that little phrase, and quite honestly, they don't know what it is to have belief in God. I would say this, that you must not use that phrase unless you're going to use it sincerely and reverently. Don't ever use it to cover up your unbelief. When we pray, we pray according to the will of God. You see what that little phrase means? It means you can be all sort of passive and fatalistic about it. You see? Oh, how lazy. You don't know whether it's God's will, so you just pray, well, Lord, do it if it's your will. It takes no effort. You don't have to put your back into it at all. It's just a nice, glib, meaningless sort of phrase that's added on to the end. That's not what God desires of us. What God desires of us is that we should seek what is God's will, and then pray it into existence. So that instead of saying, if it be thy will, Lord, I know this is your will, and I'm praying it into existence. That's the true prayer of faith. But do you see, a prayer of faith begins in heaven, not down here on the earth. We look up to God, we hear and understand his will, and so we pray, and so it comes to pass here on the earth. And that, funnily enough, is the thought behind a passage in the Gospels which seems on the surface to say the opposite. Let's go to Matthew 18 and have a look at this. Now, it's in a little verse like this, Matthew 18, verse 18, that unfortunately you need a knowledge of Greek. For Matthew 18, verse 18, does not seem to say that prayers of faith begin in heaven. What it seems to say is that prayers of faith tend to begin on the earth. Let me just read it to you. I'm getting uh, my literal version out. Matthew 18, 18, Verily I say to you, says Jesus, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, first reading, that seems to go against what I've said. What this seems to say is this. Well, whatever you decide to loose on the earth, you just pray about it, and it will be loosed in heaven. Whatsoever you bind on this earth, just decide down here, and you pray about it, and it will be bound in heaven. That's why one great writer that I was reading fairly recently actually said, using this verse, all prayer begins on earth. Oh, no, it doesn't. And unfortunately, you have here in the Greek, in verse 18, a verse which is almost untranslatable. It doesn't make any sense in the English. And because it doesn't, what they've done, they put it down in the simplest possible way. The literal Greek, if you translate it accurately, comes into an English sentence which we have to think about very carefully. 
You can check it up in the Greek if you want. I'm going to read from Young's literal translation. This is Matthew 18, <coughs> verse 18, and this is literally what it says. Now listen carefully. Verily I say to you, whatsoever things ye may bind on the earth shall be having been bound in heaven. Now that's difficult. Whatsoever things you may bound on the earth shall be having been bound in heaven. Isn't that difficult? And then it repeats it, and whatsoever things you may loose on the earth shall be having been loosed in the heavens. And you have there a past tense, having been, a past participle it is. It's the, the Greek tense is the perfect tense. The perfect tense is a very interesting little uh, tense in Greek. Someone described it as footprints in the sand. Right, you go to a beach in Bogner and you look down and there's a footprint and what do you know? That a man has walked over that sometime in the past. And the perfect tense says this, that an event occurs in the past which has effect right up to the present time. So a man steps on the sand, leaves the footprint and there's the footprint for us to see. Now what this is actually saying is this and it's confirmatory of what we know about true prayer that in fact prayer begins in heaven. Now, let's take this scenario. Up in heaven, God desires to loose a certain situation. That's past tense, having been loosed. And God says, I demand and decree a loosening in that situation. Now, the word of God has come out. The situation still seems bound. But once God has said it, it's as good as done, isn't it? Praise God. If God says something is that isn't, it is. If God says something isn't that is, it, honestly, it isn't. And when God says about that bound situation, it's loose, and I decree it, it's loosed, even though it's still bound. Aha. Right. Now, we then come into play. We then listen to God. We listen to what God is saying, and God says, I decree loosening in that situation. We then pray that into existence. We say, then very well, I loose it in the name of Jesus. And then the thing is loose. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be having been loosed in heaven. Isn't it complicated? But that's the only way the writer here could put it over, because that's the exact truth. Prayer doesn't begin here on the earth, it begins in the heavenless. And God decrees, we pray, and it's done. Hallelujah. But actually it was already done when God decreed it. This is wonderful, for in your situation, if you know what God's will is, you know that God's already decreed it. And if God's already decreed it, so let it be done. And you see how much faith that engenders. Well, thank you, Lord. This is your decree, and in Jesus' name we command it into being. But faith there is not in a vacuum, right? You're not stirring anything up. You're saying, thank you, Lord, I've got the truth. I've received it from you, and I bring it to pass in that particular situation. This is a very important uh, little construction here. By the way, exactly the same construction is seen in the passage in which Jesus introduces the church. And Jesus relates this prayer ministry to the church that he's going to build. Let's have a look at that. Matthew 16. Exactly the same construction. Matthew 16 and verse 18 and 19. Read it in Young's. You'll see it's the same. Let's read verse 18. I won't comment on this. I've dealt with it on certain of my tapes, Victorious Christian Living and others. And verse 18. And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter. You're a chip off the old block. That's what that word means, right? A little pebble. And upon this rock, this massive rock, that's his testimony of Christ, 
I will build my church. Future tense. The church wasn't in existence then, but it's going to be built. Then he says this, that the gates of hell, all the plans of hell, will never prevail against it. The church will win through. Hallelujah. And then he says this to Peter, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Or as Young's translates it quite accurately, I will give to you the keys of the reigning in the heavenlies. Wonderful. And what does he say? Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be having been bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be having been loosed in heaven. And these are the keys of the reigning of Christ. Christ reigns in the heavenlies. We know he reigns in the heavenlies. We see how he's reigning and we pray it into existence here on the earth. Marvellous, you see. There is the ministry of the church. But do you see, to be effective, a prayer of faith is in response to God's known and declared will in the heavenlies. And this is the key of the reigning of Christ here on earth. This is the key of effective prayer as far as we as a fellowship are concerned. By the way, our whole existence is owed to prayers like this. Now after the fellowship first formed, the Lord said to me, I'm going to get my word into this country through the group of people that I am building here. That is going to be their major ministry. There will be other ministries. But that's going to be the key thing. For that reason, in this very small area, in terms of population, there will be a major fellowship because a major fellowship is necessary for the extensive outreach into the world with the Word of God that I'm going to do through it. That's why, incidentally, though we have a fellowship in Bognor and Chichester, we are one because the ministry is so extensive and we haven't seen anything yet, folks. The ministry will be so extensive and so important that we're going to need everyone together in that thing. We already do. The Tate Ministry, as you know, runs with Chichester and Bogner people. And we still haven't seen that which God is going to bring forth. But God said, that's what's going to happen. Now I and others prayed it into existence. Lord, if that's what you will, in Jesus' name do it. And that's why the staggering news is that a fellowship like ours is probably one of the main Tate producers in this nation today. There are very few groups that produce more tapes than we actually produce and send out. I don't know what the figure is. Hundred a day, is it? What is it, Keith? It's something of that order. That's absolutely staggering. There are only five tape groups in America that send out more than 50 tapes a day. We've got to keep this in our minds, you see. But you see, it was that that caused us to pray, and by the way, some of us are still praying. Our aim today, of course, is to get everyone into that vision, because that was the original formative vision as it were, of the fellowship. And that's what God has blessed so abundantly without any advertising. God's got the word out. But do you see how I prayed and others prayed? That's your will, Lord. We pray it into existence. And so that's what the Lord has done. So this, you see, is not saying you can just pray any old prayer. It's not saying you just ask for any old thing and it will come to pass. Far from it. It's saying your prayer has got to be strictly in line with what God actually designed. Even healing, by the way, when Jesus was on earth, he wanted Lazarus raised. So he said, Lazarus come forth, and Lazarus was raised. Today, Jesus still wants the Lazaruses to be raised. We hear that he wants them to be raised. We pray, Lazarus, therefore, come forth, and out he comes. It's in response to God's known will that we pray. Remember we saw that, do you, in um, Genesis 20, wasn't it, last week? Do you remember with Abimelech? 
Do you remember that uh, Abraham told a lie? He said, well, she's my sister. He didn't mention that he was also married to her. Do you remember that? And Abimelech thought, there's a good-looking lady. And he said, I'm going to marry this lady. And so he started making preparations for the, the wedding. But she was already married. Now, without grace, Abraham would have got it in the neck. Do you remember that? Without grace. And God would have laid Abraham low. He would have been sick. But he was a man under grace. So who gets the sickness? Abimelech does. Wonder, there's a lovely principle in this somewhere, but I don't actually teach on it. But it's there, all right. And Abimelech, who's the innocent, but an unbeliever, and knows nothing about grace, he's laid sick. And God finally comes to him and says, you know, you're going to die of this if you're not careful. He says, well, what have I done? He says, you're planning to marry uh, a married woman. He says, God, I knew nothing about it. It was in the integrity of my heart. And God says, I know that old chum. I know it. He's a scoundrel, this fellow, isn't he? It's roughly translated from the Hebrew. And... um, (laughs) He's a real scoundrel, that chap, isn't he? He said, but I'll tell you this, if you're going to be uh, healed, he'll have to pray for you. Right? Oh dear, oh dear. So Bimelech comes and he says, now listen, why on earth didn't you tell me? Oh well, forgot, sorry about that. (laughs) And then Abraham has to pray for for him to be healed. You see? Why? God's will was that Abimelech was raised up. But he needed Abraham to pray it into existence. Beloved, don't you ever neglect prayer. God's hands are tied, believe it or not, even though he's omnipotent, unless you pray his will into existence. And Abraham prayed, so Abimelech was healed. Notice with Moses, by the way, it wasn't, oh, if thy will be done. He was active in his response to God. Do you remember? It was God's will that Israel defeated the Amalekites. But he needed Moses to stand in the gap with his arms up. For this fellowship's ministry, for the unsaved ones that you have, that you long to be saved, for the work of God generally in this country, it needs Christians to put their hands up and to actually work in prayer in response to what God wants to do in a particular locality or whatever, whatever it is. You see? Always in response to God. Now, you cannot have a true prayer of faith unless you know God's will. Otherwise, you're just jumping into the dark. Well, Lord, I'll pray for this, or I'll pray for that. God said, what are you praying for those for? That's what I want you to pray for. There's a lovely verse in Isaiah 45 which expresses this perfectly in connection with Israel. And those who are members of Prayer for Israel, please note this. And those who are members of Intercessors for Britain, please note this as well. Isaiah 45, verse 11. You have two words here. You've got the word ask, and you've got the word command. It's in two parts, this particular verse. Now, let's take the first part. This is important. Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my son. Ask me what's going to happen to them. Right? James tells us, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously without reproach. So, before you pray, why don't you ask God what to pray? Lord, what have you got in mind concerning your son? Once you've done that, then the second part comes into play, and that says, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. Isn't that staggering? You ask his will first, once you know his will, you command it. But do you see here the operation? You cannot command without asking over this particular thing. So when you say, Lord, 
In Jesus' name, I ask for a magenta jag with my name in green down the side. I would ask you, has God told you to ask for that? Is, are you praying that because that's God's sovereign will for you? Or is it your egocentricity, your materialism lust, your desire to be, you know, brighter than anyone else so everyone might know that, uh, you know, John Doe is driving through town? What is it that's behind it? You see, if that prayer is in response to God's will for your life, you'll get it. Magenta jag, gold-plated washing machine, whatever it is, you'll get it. If, however, it's materialism lust, you won't get it from God. You might fiddle it with the bank manager and try and get it, but you certainly are not going to get it from God. All right? It's in response to his will that we pray. By the way, those of you uh, who know me well will know that I have a very nice car. That is not because I like to parade around town in this nice car. You know, in fact, the first time I arrived at the meeting with the car, I parked around the block because I was so embarrassed about it. You see, that's within my heart. I don't care about cars, really, as long as it gets me from A to B. As long as uh, after a six-hour drive, I don't have a quick neck and sort of stagger out like this, I don't mind which car I'm actually driving. So I said, well, Lord, you've got the perfect car for me. I know that you have, you see. I don't care, really, what car it, it is, but I just want to know the perfect one. So that when I leave Manchester at uh, 10 o'clock in the evening and arrive back um, in Bognor at uh, 3 or 4 in the morning, I'm not going to feel too exhausted, you see. All right? You've got the perfect car. And so I just left it to the Lord. Lord, that's the one. Now, it was my wife who doesn't know very much about cars. Honestly, she, does. she knows how many wheels there are. And she said to me, do you know, I think that the Lord desires that you have, and she named a certain type of car. Oh, I said, no, I, I don't know about that. She said, I'm certain it's right. And she mentioned it to one or two people, you see. I'm sure that's right. And they said, I'm, we're sure it's, it's right as well. So I went looking for the car that I was looking for and ended up with the one that she prayed for and a thousand pounds cheaper too, right, than it should have been. Now, that's the will of God. I applied all the things that I talk about in my text on guidance and I ended up with the right car. Now, that's the way of things. It wasn't done out of materialism, lust. It was done because I need such a car. And it was in fulfilment of that that God gave me that particular car. And I spent hours on the motorway. Unfortunately, the car can drive itself, more or less, which is very good. Praise the Lord. All right, so there's a prayer of faith in response to God's will. And it's because it's in response to God's will and not your will that you're told to pray it in a certain way. Now, notice this carefully. We saw this in passing last time. Let's go to John 14 and verse 14. A very much quoted verse. John 14, 14. And then we're going to read verse 13 because that gets it in perspective. In John 14, 14, and if you didn't have the rest of the Bible and you took this as it stood, it might say what I'm saying it doesn't say. Look, if you shall ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Anything. What do you want? Anything. You name it, anything. Well, da, 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 anything. And that's apparently what God's a complete carte blanche, you know. This is the access card, and uh, you don't have to pay for it. You just put the card in the machine, and God provides the goods. Aha. Unfortunately, verse 13 limits it slightly. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And immediately there, do you see, the balance is that whatever you're going to ask is, of course, going to glorify God. And if it glorifies God, then you'll get it. 
But actually, it's even more precise than that. Do you see the little phrase, in my name? It has a very distinct meaning, that. It, I know some people pray it, and they don't really think about it, you know. Well, Lord, I'm asking for this magenta jaguar in Jesus' name. That's it. Fulfilled the requirement here, John 14, 13 and 40. That's my verse. There's my reference. Great. And then you sit back, and you just wait for it to come through the front door. Or whatever. You might just do that, by the way, if you pray in that sort of way. Is that, does that, is that it? Is the, in my name, or in his name, or in Jesus' name, is it a sort of secret, open, uh, says me? Is that what it is? You know, an open says me, ah, now I want this gold-plated jaguar. I've gone up now, you see. Gold-plated jaguar. I don't care if my name's not on the side, I'll let you off that. But uh, this gold-plated jaguar, in Jesus' name. I've got it. Oh, well, none. that's it then. If he's asking Jesus' name, we've got to give it to him. Is that right? No, sir, it's not. What does this phrase, in my name, mean? Well, it's a legal phrase. It's a legal phrase. If you actually have to appear in court and you have a lawyer, the lawyer speaks in your name. What does that mean? That he can say any old thing? No, of course not. He says what you want him to say. He represents you. I mean, if it's your defense lawyer, he can't stand up and say, well, I think he's a crook. You think he's a crook. We all think he's guilty, but look, folks, I've got to stand here and say this because I'm paid for it. Of course he can't, because you'll say, excuse me, but uh, you're not acting for me at all. Right? Of course you can't do that. If someone's acting in your name, they're speaking on your behalf, and they are saying in legal language what you actually probably could not phrase correctly in that particular situation. In my name means on behalf of him. Now, if you ask something on behalf of Jesus, you better make sure it is on behalf of Jesus. Some people ask for things, and Jesus would never ask for them. I mean, ridiculous. Jesus must say, hey, 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 you asked that in my name, I didn't tell you to ask that. That's saying to your defense, right, what are you talking about? Right, I'm not being tried for murder, it's robbery. And that's what the phrase, in my name, actually means. You ask in the name of Jesus, why? Because Jesus has told you to ask for it. And listen, whatever you ask, if it's in his name, of course you're going to get it, because he wants you to get it. You see, of course it's got to come. That becomes axiomatic at that particular junction, you see. It's putting into effect his will, not ours, and that's the important thing. All right, John 15, 16. Let's have a look at another. John 15, 16. And I'm going to read it all. And remember, this is a passage in context. You can't take this verse just out of context. Verse 16. You have not chosen me, he says, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. Now it's fruit. You're bringing forth fruit. For whom? For God. Then he adds this, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. But you see the implication there, it's fruit that you're asking for. Fruit for his kingdom, fruit for his glory, not just for your selfish desire or your ease. And if you take verse 16, it's in the same context as verse 7, where what I'm saying is very clearly outlined. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Do you see those two things that are added? If you abide in me, you're in fellowship with God, you're in close relationship with God, and his word abides in your heart, you know what he's saying, you know what his will is, you shall ask what you will, and it will be done unto you. 
You can ask whatever you like. Why? Because you're so in tune with God that you'll only ask what he wants you to ask. I remember in the early part of my ministry, I used to say to people, I can do what I want. I can do what I want. Then I used to add this. Because you say, I only want to do what he wants me to do. So I can do what I want. It's a bit dangerous. I haven't said that often since then. But you see the principle behind this. And here, if his word abides in you, you will ask what he wills, because it will be what you will. You see? The two are the same. You will what he wills, he wills what you will. And you'll ask whatever you will, it will come to pass and be done. Sometimes you will pray without knowing the will of God. There's nothing wrong in that. Absolutely nothing wrong. As long as you can say, well, Lord, nevertheless, your will be done. Sometimes we do say, Lord, I know you've called me to this task, but it's hard. It really is hard. If I've got a very busy timetable sometimes, and I've uh, just got a couple of days with my wife, you know, and there are demands being made upon me, sometimes I say, Lord, I know you've called me to this, but it is tough. Will you help me in this situation? There's nothing wrong in expressing, you know, the pressure that you are under. Do you remember Jesus did that? Do you remember we saw that last time? I think it's worth just looking at this again. It's, uh, we'll turn to uh, Mark 14, all right? Mark 14. And here is Jesus in Gethsemane. Now, he'd already said to James and John, can you drink of the cup that I shall drink from? He knew what lay ahead for him, but he was in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here, the agony that he's under really comes out. He says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Everything is possible to you. Then he says, take away this cup from me. That's the agony that he was under. The thought of his death, the thought of being cut off from God the Father was so much at this point that he said, Lord, all things are possible. Take this cup from me. And then he adds this. Nevertheless, not what I will, but that what you will be done. And there it is, a submission to the will of God. But can you see, in all of these prayers, it's putting into action God's will. And he needs us to pray for that will to come to pass. Now, with all of this in our background, we now understand that lovely verse in Matthew 6. I used to wonder about this verse in Matthew 6, and I used to scratch my head and think, really, Lord, I don't know what this is about. Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read verse 7, where it tells you not to be vain and repetitious in your prayers. Understand, in a church last week, a chap got so bored with the hymn that uh, he actually started going into the national anthem in the middle of the hymn, just to stir things up a bit, you know. And some people pray so long and so repetitively that some people feel like doing the same. But verse 7 here, Jesus warns us against it. But when you pray, he says, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be ye therefore not like unto them. Now look. This is the thing that used to get me when I was a young Christian. For your father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him. And I used to think, well, if he knows, why do I have to ask him? Really? And I thought, well, a, a decent father, if he sees his son in need of a new pair of shoes, he doesn't have to be asked. You just say, come on, down to Clark's or wherever, and we'll buy you a new pair of shoes. It would be obvious. The thing about us is we're in Cosmos Diabolicus, the devil's world. God knows the things we need. Now, to get them, we hear what we need, we let God know our need, and he then says, right, you pray it into existence. Ask of me, then you command of the Lord. And so it comes through. You must ask. James tells you this. You have not because you ask not. And there are many, many Christians who have not because they don't ask. 
Isn't it funny how we all forget this? We get so busy doing this and doing that and supplying this, sometimes we forget to ask. And the moment you get on your knees and say, God, please can I have this? Suddenly, it's right there. We have to do that. Oh, James adds another little word to it, doesn't it? I'll, I'll turn to it, don't you? In James 4, he then adds, he says this, you, are, you have not because you ask not. Then he says this, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. Look, that you may consume it upon your lust. And what that verse says is, if you ask for something just for your own vain glory, just for your lust, just uh, for your, you know, your own materialism, God may not answer that particular prayer. I mean, can you imagine someone saying, Lord, may I marry a non-Christian in Jesus' name? Is God going to give you that? Of course he's not going to give you that. That would be rank rebellion. Oh Lord, you know I have this problem with gambling. May I win a million pounds? In Jesus' name, just bless me. Father, when I go on the drunken booze tonight, may it be the happiest time I've ever had. In Jesus' name. You're going to receive that? Of course not. Right? Show this group of people that I'm right. In Jesus' name. So when I come in, they might all say, she was right, he was right. Oh, we're so sorry, you were right, you were right, you were right. Is Jesus going to do that? Of course he won't do it. You see, you're using it amiss to spend on your lust. I met a chap this weekend in Manchester. He said, well, I'm praying for the most well-paid job out. And I said, really? I said, but don't you think happiness is more important? He said, listen here, he said, God's going to get a tenth. <laughs> and I sort of imagined God saying, oh, forgive me, I've forgotten that. Of course, 10% royalties are mine. Nine-tenths goes to this fellow. Aha. Uh -huh. Much better to ask God for a good job because, you know, he wants to bless you. Beware, unless you ask amiss, won't you? And we can do this in many, many ways. Here it's just materialism, lust, or whatever it is. Um, oh, by the way, can I say here, quickly, I do believe that some people will be rich. I do believe that God's blessing is. I long for the day, it won't be me, but I long for the day when one of our members drives up to the meeting in a Rolls Royce. I think he had ministered on this. I would love that one day. I would love to see that actually happening one day, you know, that uh, someone drives up. But not so that they might say, now they'll see. <laughs> now they know my doctrine was right. Nothing like that. No, I would love it if some person who is genuinely blessed of the Lord turns up in a Rolls Royce, and if someone says, oh, what a nice Rolls Royce, and they say, yes, I'll tell you the story, shall I? And then they start giving their testimony about how God has blessed them. I don't believe that's God's will for every one of us. Some people wouldn't know what to do with a Rolls Royce. They really wouldn't. Some people, it would send them into the flesh completely. Do you know this, that riches is a greater snare for most Christians than poverty. When Christians are poor, they get on their knees and seek God. When they're rich, they forget him. Now, if you were God, what would you do? Would you give them riches? I wouldn't. I'd say, great, the poorer they are, the more they seek me. <laughs> right, it goes in inverse proportion. The really blessed people are those who, when God blesses them, they stick with God and still seek his face. Right? Then it's blessing, blessing, blessing. All right, let's see uh, how we can sometimes ask amiss. And I want to go to perhaps the most quoted verse in these days about faith. I want to go to 3 John, verse 2. Now, there are many things, you see, that we can pray, and we know they're God's will. But sometimes, when we take a particular verse, it has a little bit added on, or a little bit in front of it, and you conveniently forget those bits. Now, let's have a look at this, verse 2. 
And this expresses an eternal truth. Verse 2. Beloved, says John, this is a lovely book, actually. Beloved, says John, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. Or literally, I wish that in all things thou mayest prosper and be in health. That's God's will for you, by the way, that you may prosper and be in health. That doesn't mean to be stinking rich. It doesn't. What it means is that whatever you put to ha your hand to, you know God's blessing in that. That you have enough. And preferably that you have enough and moreover to give. That's a blessing. I know that the most contented people I know aren't stinking rich. You know, they're people who are alright, but they've got contentment and happiness, you know. This oft-quoted scripture, of course, that says the godliness with contentment is great gain. They're the richest people. But God desires that you may be in health. Why? Because your body shouldn't be a hindrance to the work of the Lord. It should be a help to the work of the Lord. He wants you to be prosperous so that actually you have enough uh, food, you have a roof over your head, you have sufficient clothes, so you don't have to think about those things and you can get on with the things of the Lord. You see? Right, now some people claim that. Well, thank you, Lord. Your word says you want me in health, you want me to prosper. Thank you, Lord. It's all up to God. No, it's not. The end part of the verse is very important. I read it all. Beloved, I wish in all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Do you see that little phrase? Your soul has got to wax fat. What does that mean? That in the area of your thinking, in the area of your emotions, you basically have contentment, happiness, relaxation, that you can say to God, God, I know how to be abased and how to abound. I'm content. That's a prosperous soul, you see. If, however, you have a negative soul, negative, in bitterness, in criticism, a discontent sort of soul, I'll tell you, it's like an arrow through you, and you're fine. God's blessing will be limited on that. You know, these negative, critical people, they go around, and they're trying very often to get God's blessing, but they're actually holding up the blessing because inside they're not prospering. And because they're not prospering inside, they don't seem to prosper outside either, externally. So do you see, your soul's got to prosper. You might say, well, how do I get my soul to prosper? Do you know an easy thing to do is to pray about it? It's funny, isn't it? But Ephesians 1 contains the prayer of Paul. Paul prays that the Ephesians might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He prays it. For this cause I bow the knee unto the Father, that you may have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's one prayer you can pray, and God will definitely answer it. Once you get a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, immediately your soul comes into contentment. Because you have Jesus living in there, and you're just content. Well, Lord, I'm only here for a short season. You've got a mansion up there in heaven, and, well, if he kills me, yet will I praise him. Right? I'm only here to serve you. If that means being a workhorse for you, well, thank you, Lord. If I'm going to be an ox for you, thank you, Lord. If I'm going to be a greyhound for you, thank you, Lord. If I'm going to be a racehorse for you, thank you, Lord. But whatever it is, I thank you, Lord. Now, that's a, a lovely way of doing it. So, do see, here are some scriptures that you can start claiming immediately. You can definitely pray that in faith, and God will answer it. Ask for God to give you prosperity in your soul. And then you might find it's the key to unlock prosperity in everything else. 
I go to many, many, many fellowships. In every fellowship, I find that there are some who are discontent with their fellowship, and there are those who are content in their fellowship. And generally, it's a condition of the soul that counts. Now, sometimes they've got genuine things to complain about. Generally speaking, however, I found those who are discontent with their lot, with their wife, with their husband, with this, with that, they'll be discontent with the group they're in. But those who are content at home tend to be content among the people that they're with. It's interesting. And very often it's the contentedness in our soul that actually comes out in contentedness in what you're actually involved in, you see. Well, that's the sort of principle outlined here. There are other things you can pray. I'll just take you to one or two other uh, scriptures along this line. Then I want to have a quick look at unanswered prayer. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. And I hope this is what you do. I certainly do it myself, and every one of us should. 1 Timothy 2, 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, do you do that? Pray for all men around, supplications, intercessions, giving of thanks. Verse 2, for kings. You should pray for our royal family. You should do it regularly for our royals. And for all that are in authority, irrespective, may I say, of political bias that may be in your heart. You pray for all in authority. Here he's telling them to pray for the Roman emperor and to pray for all the governors in Rome. And they weren't a very hot bunch, you know. right? They weren't very nice. And he's saying, you've still got to pray for them. Listen, if they go really wrong, it will affect your religious freedom in the end. You've got to pray for them. For kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Remember this, revolution always ends up with worse than it replaces, as the Iranians know only too well. And be very careful if you think that the Bible is anti-establishment. The Bible is not anti-establishment. It is pro-establishment for peace. And here, even pro the Roman authority. Isn't that staggering? All right? Who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? We want peace in our society for the gospel to get out. That's it. All right, so once you've got it from the word of God, you can pray. Here is your mandate for praying for the society. Oh, I want to say one other thing. There is a scripture that's also quoted, and I think I have time to deal with it. Uh, if we go to Mark 11, this is a, a so-called prayer that I often hear quoted. Let's just read, shall we? Mark 11, verse 23. And this is often quoted, For verily I say to you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart but shall believe that these things which he saith shall come to pass he shall have whatsoever he saith therefore I say to you what things soever you desire when you pray believe that you receive them and you shall have them now verse 23 is not actually a prayer do you notice that prayer is addressed to the father what is said here is addressed to the mountain this is not a prayer, this is a word of authority and a word of command. Do you remember what's happened here? There was a fig tree which was luxuriant and uh, filled with leaves. And Jesus comes up to it, there's no fruit on it, and he curses the thing. The very next day, they're walking along, and Peter suddenly says, Hey, this thing's withered. Those of you who know about these things will know, if you have a large luxuriant tree and it starts to die, it takes several weeks to actually die. And Peter knew that a large fig tree would take several weeks to die. But this one didn't. 
came back a day later, it was all desiccated and dried up. He's amazed. He says, this tree, you only cursed it yesterday, look at it. All right? And Jesus says, have faith in God. In other words, God can do anything. Now remember this, the fig tree was a type of Israel. And the lesson Jesus was teaching through the fig tree was this, that Israel, God is coming to collect fruit from you. If he doesn't find the fruit, you will find yourself desiccated. You remember he said to the women weeping for him in Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Right? And he said, if all this can happen when the wood is green, imagine what's going to happen when it's dry. Weep for yourselves, daughters of Jerusalem. All right? And what he's saying is, this tree is an object lesson for Israel. And Israel, I warn you, unless there's fruit, this is what's going to happen to you. And you know a few decades later, that's exactly what did happen to Israel. But then he says to Peter, have faith in God. And he says to Peter, look, he says, if you command this mountain, it will be cast into the sea. And Peter would know exactly what he's saying, for that is a reference to Zechariah and chapter 4, verse 7. Do you remember in Zechariah, Zechariah um, had to do with the development of the temple, the building of the temple, the commissioning of the temple. And there were many people who were opposed to what Zerubbabel had to do in those days. So God gave Zerubbabel a promise. Keep your finger in the place. Go to Zechariah chapter 4. Let's just see this. Zechariah chapter 4 and this is the word of encouragement to Zerubbabel who had the job to build and establish the temple. This is what he says to him, verse 6. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It's not going to be by your efforts, by you gritting your teeth. It's going to be by my spirit. And then this promise to him, he says this, verse 7, Who art thou, O great mountain? This is an obstacle to the work. Who is going to come against Zerubbabel? And here's his promise, Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. See that? Zerubbabel had a task. He was called of God, and part of that ministry was connected with overcoming the obstacles. And God gave him the authority to come against them. And here he's saying to Peter, and saying actually to all the apostles, and saying to all of us who are building the church, when there's a mountain against us, we have the authority to speak to that mountain and say, be gone in Jesus' name. I've used that authority many, many times. Apostolic authority, whatever you want to call it. But you see, again, this is not so much a prayer of faith. This is rather in response to God's command, God's will. It's God's will that we build this place, and therefore, as part of that deal, we have the ability to speak a word of command. And in that situation, you can say what you want, and it will be done. Okay. I have that type of authority in many parts of the church in Britain. Not all over, but in many parts. And I've known amazing and spectacular answers to prayer. We need to do that for our own work here, so that we get on our knees and say, in Jesus' name, out of the way. Wonderful. Okay, there it is. So, do you see... That's what this is. This is not a carte blanche so that you can do whatever you want. Some people say it is. You say, oh no, you can ask anything, anything at all, and it will be done. Really? I mean, for example, Balaam. Do you remember Balaam on his ass? Do you remember that? Riding out to curse Israel. Now, God had blessed Israel. Balaam was going to curse it, and the ass actually refused to move. Could he say, out of my way, mountain? Get out of my way, ass. Could he? No. Would that have worked? No, it wouldn't because he was making an ass of himself. That's the problem with Balaam. No, this only works when you're doing that which is God's will. 
God desires that Israel should be saved at the moment. That should give us authority to pray for Israel. God desires that godliness returns to Britain. That gives us renewed authority in our prayers. God desires that we as a fellowship should be in peace and in a place where we see the ministry moving forth. That gives us authority. And so we use that particular authority. All right? And so it goes on. One last thing that I say before we get on to an answer prayer. What about God will give you the desires of your heart? I often hear that used. Well, whatever you desire, God will give it to you. All right? But that would mean with some of us, we desire peace and quiet, that we'd retire. You know, we put our feet up and say, great, God's given me the desire of my heart. Hi. And we don't do anything. Oh dear, does it say that? Well, let's take one scripture, shall we? And take it in context again. Psalm 37. And at the end of verse 4, you'll find it. He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Isn't that wonderful? Right? The desires of your heart, whatever you want, he'll give them to you. Ah, 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 ah. There's a bit in front of it. Verse 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he will give thee the desires of thine heart. Now, a person who delights in the Lord only wants the things of God. And if you only want the things of God, you'll get whatever you want. It's axiomatic. Don't ever take it out of context. You only want what God wants, and in this case, you will actually get them. That's it. All right? By the way, you may receive a prophecy. I will give thee the desire of your heart. He generally does it in the singular in prophecy. Have you noticed? And which desire? Because you have many desires. You know which one it is. It's the godly one, isn't it? And you say, thank you, Lord. That was a word from you. One last thing. God may have spoken a word into your heart, and you're in faith over a situation because of that thing that God's spoken into your heart. Say you meet someone who hasn't heard from God over that situation. You mustn't expect them to have the faith that you've got. And neither must you let them depress your faith. If you know what God said to you, you keep your faith between you and God, and you'll see it come to pass. Don't let anyone move you. No one will move me from the way ahead for us as a fellowship. No one. Because I've heard from God, you see. It's as easy as that. And it will come to pass, whatever it is. All right. Now, just to complete this Bible study, and this won't take too long, funnily enough, I'm going to have a look at some of the reasons why there is such a thing as unanswered prayer. Or perhaps it's not quite unanswered, as we'll see. We touched this in passing last time. Unfortunately, you and I know that no matter how many testimonies we hear, they don't always tell the whole truth. In other words, they'll tell you the prayers that have been answered, they'll conveniently forget the ones they prayed that weren't answered. And sometimes they can give a wrong balance. Some people speak as if every prayer they pray is answered. But there's no one in the room here who can say that. I can't say that. I tend to forget those prayers that aren't answered. You see, I remember those that are. I'll tell those to anyone. But very often I pray for, for things and they don't seem to be answered. Um, and we all know that no matter how many testimonies you listen to, you know that prayers that you pray and don't seem to get an answer are actually a fact of life. Are there any things that we can look at to help us avoid such a thing? Or to, uh, perhaps to help us explain it so that we get peace? Well, I want to outline four things to you that I hope will uh, help you a great deal in prayer. The first thing I want to say is this. If you are out of fellowship with God, that is, you have a sin in your life which you know about and you have not confessed to God, God will not answer your prayer. An out-of-fellowship believer will have no prayer answered except a confessional prayer. You can be out of fellowship and ask God to forgive you and he'll answer it positively. Isn't that good news? 
If he didn't, by the way, we'd be stuck, wouldn't we? But the confessional prayer is always answered, the others are not. So 1 John 1, 9 is the only prayer you confess your sins, he's faithful and just, to forgive you your sins. Once you're back in fellowship, then you're ready for answer prayer. Let's see a verse in the Old Testament and one in the New that says this. Uh, Psalm 66, verse 18. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And that's unconfessed sin. You will not have your prayers answered. In the New Testament, 1 John 3, 22, which is a very powerful verse. 1 John 3 and verse 22. Here it is, 1 John 3, 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, do you see there, answered prayer comes because we keep his commandments and do that which is pleasing in his sight. And the opposite is true. If you don't do that which is pleasing in his sight, then, in fact, your prayers will not be answered. And so here is a little rule for getting answered prayer. Make sure you're in fellowship before you pray. That's why, by the way, before every meeting and before I do anything of a spiritual nature, I always have a time of confession before the Lord. And it's a very good practice to get into, may I say. The second reason why you don't seem to get an answer to prayer is quite honestly because God has said no to you. It's because it's not his will for you that that certain thing occurs. And last time I spoke about why it's a foolish man that won't allow God to say no. Of course God's got the right to say no. And if it's not his will, he won't give it to you. That would make God foolish in his dealings with us. If it's not his will, it won't come to pass. So if you ask that which is not his will, you will not get an answer. Actually, you do get an answer, but it's no. No. No matter how many books you read, no matter how many scriptures you claim from John 14, Honestly, you won't get it. The third reason for unanswered prayer is lack of unity. And this is very important. Back to Matthew 18. Just by chance a few months ago, I ministered on this in uh, Chichester, I think. I didn't know it would come up again tonight, however. All right, after verse 18, which you all now know says, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be having been bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be having been loose in heaven. And then verse 19 says this, again I say to you, this is Matthew 18, 19, again I say to you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Now, what's this? Is this a matter then when you say, now listen, this gold-plated washing machine, will you agree with me that I get it? Okay, I will. Right. Can I borrow it? Yes. Great. That's not what this is talking about. The Greek's quite clear here. It's something deeper than that. Here you've got two people who've heard the same thing from God. And when they meet together, they have the same conviction from God, and they are like spirits. They come together, and I'll tell you, they agree it's a very powerful prayer. Indeed, it will be done automatically. But this isn't two people forcing themselves to agree. This is a passive thing. Two people have already heard from God, so they automatically agree. A powerful fellowship is one which has a majority of its members in that position. They've heard from God and they agree. We're very blessed. We have a large majority who have the vision. I meet uh, many, many fellowships where there's no vision to have. You see? And they're all over the place. They can't even agree on basic points of doctrine. And they're all 
you know, all over the place. And as a result, they don't see the results of their labors. We're very blessed in that way. Verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Again, this doesn't just mean, oh, we just decide to have a little cup of coffee together. These are people with one purpose who've come together with that purpose. On Tuesday evenings, we come with the one intention to worship the Lord that his name may be glorified. There's great power in that. And one day when we get to heaven, we might find people have been saved in Albania because of the meetings here on the Tuesday. The Holy Spirit's been pouring out into something from those meetings. Hallelujah. Don't limit God in your thinking over that. We also know, don't we, that a married couple, if there isn't peace between them, a basic relaxation between these two, it will hinder their prayers. Right? We'll just check that out. 1 Peter 3, 7. That's why it's an important thing to spend time with your husband, with your wife, to get agreement. By the way, it is a blessed thing if you have a husband and wife who totally agrees with what you have in the Lord. It's a wonderful blessing. And those who have husbands and wives who may not be saved or are of a different persuasion, they know what agony it is. You can't say this, you can't say that. You know, you're not free to do this. What a wonderful blessing it is to have a husband or a wife who agrees with you in the Lord. And by the way, if your husband and wife or wife isn't in that position, do pray for it. God's will is that you may all know the blessing of that. Likewise, it says, verse 7, Ye husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honour unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And this is a very important thing. And uh, the prayers of a husband and wife who have this agreement together are very, very powerful indeed. And last of all, then, we come to another reason for apparent unanswered prayers. And there are three parts to this. It's what I call a delay in answer. A delay in the answer. And sometimes you pray for something and there's a long delay. And sometimes it's only at the end of a large passage of time that you suddenly realize God's done it. Why is there a delay? Well, there's several reasons. One, it could be angelic interference. Do you remember in Daniel 10, right? Daniel was seeking wisdom from God, and do you remember the answer was delayed, 21 days? And God actually said to him, well, you see, the prince of Persia has stopped the answer getting through, but I've sent Michael along, and there's been fisticuffs in heaven, and now the answer has actually come to you. And very often, when a group of people who are going to be used in blessing of the Lord come together, they find that they pray and pray and pray and pray and pray, and there's a delay. And sometimes they say, what is it? Can we get enough faith? Or they start looking, ah, you see, it's because of this, because of that, because it's so easy, you know, to point the finger and find reasons. It might actually be that there is a battle in the heavenlies going on, and the thing is delayed. And the last thing that we, we want, or any fellowship wants, is this sort of turmoil that starts. That's part of Satan's plot, you see. Ah, the answer's delayed because it's in the heavens, so we'll stir it up down here. It's useless. What we've got to discern is that there is a battle in the heavenlies. And if there is a battle in the heavenlies, then start praying against that. Okay? So there may be angelic interference. However, there may be a delay in prayer or an unanswered prayer because God has a greater purpose in mind. And God often does this. There's a lovely example in the book of Romans. And I love this example a lot. I wonder whether you've ever noticed the verse in Romans chapter 1. Because Romans 1 is so difficult, a lot of people flick through it and get on to chapter 3. Have a look at this. Romans 1, verse 9 and verse 10. 
Here Paul prays a prayer which was not answered. Well, 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 in the book of Romans. Oh, heavens. Romans 1, verse 9 and verse 10. For God is my witness, he says, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. We saw that last week. Look, verse 10. Making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come and see you. The word prosperous means happy. Oh, I'm praying that God will give me a really happy journey so I can come and see you. There's the prayer. By the will of God. There's the introduction of the will of God. Was it a happy journey? No. It was in a prison ship, actually. And they had a shipwreck along the way. Isn't that funny? You know, you'd have thought, if you prayed in faith, there'd be no trouble. That's what's put out today. You're, well, I just pray and there's no, it's all honky-dory along. You go boom, 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 and you're there. Well, what went wrong with Paul? You mean Paul didn't have faith at this point? Oh, that's not right. It just so happened that God wanted him to preach the gospel in an island in the Mediterranean. And I love the way it's expressed in Acts 8. These barbarous people were very kind to us. How very nice. Like my saying about the Mancunians. Well, those wretched folk were super. Well, that's what he says. And he preached the gospel. He was able to, to some very high dignitaries on the particular island where he went to actually get the gospel over. There were miracles done at that time. And then, did he go to the Roman church? No, he didn't arrive at the Roman church. He was put in a prison in Rome. Why? Was that our answer prayer? Should we all have a crisis over faith here? Oh, it doesn't work. Be careful how you pray. You might end up like Paul. No, don't have a crisis in faith. There was greater blessing. You see, he goes on to say, I long to come to you, a happy journey to you, that I may impart truth to you. This gift that I've got, I want to share the deep things of God. And God thought they were so marvellous, he didn't just want it shared with the Romans, he wanted it shared with everyone else. And so Paul couldn't go to the Romans, he languished in prison, well, thrived in prison, actually, and instead of giving the talks, he wrote them out. Here's the book of Romans. Isn't that lovely? And because he wrote them out, you are enjoying them, and not just the Roman church. Aren't you glad God didn't answer his prayer? I am. Praise the Lord. Now, do you see, God has a greater purpose in all of that. We mustn't limit God in our thinking. God's more interested in his kingdom and the work of his kingdom than in your petty materialism. Right? He wants you blessed, but he wants you blessed as part of the greater blessing, you see? So that's another reason why you may get unanswered prayer. God's doing something bigger than you have any knowledge or conception of. I'm sure Paul, when he wrote to the Romans, didn't at that time realise that here we are 2,000 years later and we're still reading it. What a blessing. And John, you know, taken off to preach to the pigeons on Patmos. Could he have said, oh, this is a the devilish attack. And undoubtedly there were Christians saying, bring John back. God was saying, what? Never. I've got things to show him to bless the whole church. Think he's going to come back? Certainly not. Right? So if you find suddenly that I've been kidnapped by the Sheffield people, don't get into a mad panic about this, you see. Some people have rejoiced about it, I know, but uh, don't get into a mad panic. It just might be that God has a greater glory. And the last thing that comes in this delay is this. Very often, when the answer to our prayers is delayed, it increases our faith. Funny, but it's true. You pray, nothing happens. You pray, nothing happens. You pray, nothing happens. And when finally something happens, oh, your faith is so enormous. We'll have one last scripture. 1 Kings 18, 41. Here you've got an exact 
example of that. And this is lovely. We'll end with the scripture. Verse 41. Dear Elijah, right, there'd be no rain for three and a half years, and all of a sudden it's time to rain again. And so, verse 41, he warns Ahab. This is 1 Kings 18, 41. Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. Come on, off we go. Verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. He cast himself down upon the earth, put his face between his knees, said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. So what did he do? Get the booklet out again and read it again. No. Oh, well, I thought this prayer was supposed to work. No. There's nothing. Aha. Uh-huh. He said, go again seven times. Seven times. Oh, all right. So he plods off. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he went. Went up the first time. There's nothing. Go up again. Up again. Nothing. Go up again. Up again. Nothing. 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 And then finally he comes back and he says, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea, like a man's hand. He said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He girded up his loins, ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel, overtook the chariot. Isn't that nice? Bye! Great stuff. Now, what do you think it did for the servant? I'll tell you, that servant learned a thing or two. That when his master prayed, God answered prayer. It didn't seem at first that the prayer was answered, but he knew it was going to be answered. Beloved, you should have the same assurance in your heart when you pray a prayer of faith in line with the will of God. It's wonderful to see this. That is why a true man of God has endless patience. Those who are not true men of God are impatient. They want their prayers answered now. But God very often says no. You pray for the work of God in this fellowship. Think it's going to happen three months' time? You're wrong. It may happen in ten years' time. You see? Might just do that. But you pray anyway. So remember, our prayers, if they are to be prayers of faith, have to be in response to God's revealed will. And when you pray, don't fear the no from God. Don't. Rejoice in the no from God because you've got a Heavenly Father who's looking after you and He knows best. Hallelujah. But when you pray, check it out. Then you can have faith. If it's the will of God, it's from the Word. You know this is what God wants. Once you pray it, you know it's going to come to pass. And it may be delayed. If it is delayed, say, Lord, it's part of a bigger thing that perhaps I don't see at this moment. But thank you because it surely is going to come. Their prayers of faith. These aren't uh, extraordinary things. These are wonderful things. But you see, they all demand maturity. And we've got to press on with God until our prayers really become those of mature saints. Then we'll see God really, really moving. All right, next time we're going on to nourishment and we're going to talk about eating the word and meditation. But you'll find later on in this series, when I come on to fasting, that I'll actually be back to talk about prayer and fasting and why the two go hand in hand. Let's just pray and we'll go for the evening. Father, I want to pray your will upon my brothers and sisters. I pray that we all in this fellowship may have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. I pray that we might prosper and be in health 
even as our soul prospers. Father, I thank you you've established this fellowship for the propagation of your word and your truth. So be it, Lord. And Father, may we all get to you, get on our knees before you, that we hear your calling, we see what you've got in mind, and that, Father, we might know that you have called every one of us to be part of that overall work. You know the plans we've got. Father, we commit them to you. We don't want to do what we want to do. We want to do what you want to do. And Father, we would ask that you will hold us up if we're not going in the right direction, but speed us forth if we are. Father, just give great love and peace in this fellowship, great unity of purpose and of mind. And in every home, may there be a fount of contentedness. Hallelujah. Father, for everyone who listens to this tape, we ask for blessing upon their house and all theirs, all their relatives, all their loved ones, that, Father, they might know the wonderful, miraculous workings of God in their lives. Give us a good night's sleep and journeying mercies home. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Praise God.